Chapter Eight of Women on the American Frontier. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Bridget Gage. Women on the American Frontier by William W. Fowler. Chapter Eight. Homestead life in the backwoods and on the prairie. The first stage in pioneer life is nomadic. A half score of men, women, and children faring on day after day, living in the open air and camping at night beside a spring or brook. Under the canopy of the forest, it is only when they reach their place of destination that the germ of a community fixes itself to the soil, and rises obedient to those laws of social and civil order which distinguish the European colonist from the Asiatic nomad. The experiences of camp life form the initial steps to the thorough backwoods education which a woman must at length acquire to fit her for the duties and trials incident to all remote settlements. Riding, driving, or tramping on, now through stately groves, now over prairies which lose themselves in the horizon, now fording shallow streams, or pulling themselves on rafts across rivers, skirting morasses or wallowing through them, and climbing mountains, as they breathe the fresh woodland air and catch glimpses of a thousand novel scenes, and encounter the dangers or endure the hardships of this first stage in their pilgrimage. They learn those first hard lessons which stand them in such good stead when they have settled in their permanent abodes in the heart of the wilderness, which it is the work of the pioneer to subdue. To the casual observer, there is an air of romance and wild enjoyment in this journey through that magnificent land. Many things there, doubtless, are to give zest and enjoyment to the long march of the pioneer and his family. The country through which they pass deserves the title of the Garden of God. The trees of the forest are like stately columns in some virtuous temple. The sun shines down from an Italian sky upon lakes set like jewels flashing in the beams of light. The sward is filled with exaggerated velvet, through whose green the purple and scarlet gleams of fruit and flowers appear, and everything speaks to the eye of the splendor, richness, and joy of wild nature. Traits of man in this scene are favorite themes for the painter's art. The fire burning under the spreading oak or chestnut, the horses or oxen or mules picketed in the vista, Indian wigwams and squaws with children watching curiously, the pioneer household sitting by their fire and eating their evening meal. This is the picture framed by the imagination of a poet or artist, but this is but a superficial sketch. A mere glimpse of one of the many thousand of phases of the long and weary journey. The reality is quite another thing. The arrival of the household at their chosen seat marks the second stage in backwoods life, a stage which calls for all the powers of mind and body, tasks the hands, exercises the ingenuity, summons vigilance, and awakens every latent energy. Woman steps at once into a new sphere of action, and hand in hand, shoulder to shoulder, with her stronger but not more resolute companion, enters on that career which looks to the formation of communities and states. It is the household which constitutes the primal atom, the aggregation whereof makes the village, town, or city. The state itself rests upon the household finally, and the household is what the faithful mother makes it. The toilsome march at length ended, we see the great wagon, with its load of household utensils and farming implements, bedsteads walling up the sides, a wash-tub turned up to serve as a seat for the driver, 
a broom and hoe handle sticking out behind, with the handles of a plow, pots and kettles dangling below, bundles of beds and bedding, and throning children of all the smaller sizes, stopping at last for good, and the whole cortez of men, women, and boys, cattle, horses, and hogs, resting after their mighty tramp. Shelter and food are the first wants of the settler. The log cabin rises to supply the one. The axe, the plow, the spade, the hoe prepare the other. The women not seldom joined in the work of felling trees and trimming logs to be used in erecting the cabins. Those who have never witnessed the erection of log cabins would be surprised to behold the simplicity of their mechanism and the rapidity with which they are put together. The axe and the auger are often the only tools used in their construction, but usually the drawing knife, the broad axe, and the cross-cut saw are added. The architecture of the body of the house is sufficiently obvious, but it is curious to notice the ingenuity with which the wooden fireplace and chimney are protected from the action of the fire by a lining of clay. To see a smooth floor formed from the plain surface of hewed logs, and a door made of boards split from the log, hastily smoothed with the drawing-knife, united firmly together with wooden pins, hung upon wooden hinges, and fastened with a wooden latch. Not a nail nor any particle of metal enters into the composition of the building. All is wood from top to bottom. All is done by the woodsman without the aid of any mechanic. These primitive dwellings are by no means so wretched as their name and rude workmanship would seem to imply. They still frequently constitute the dwelling of the farmers in new settlements. They are often roomy, tight, and comfortable. If one cabin is not sufficient, another and another is added, until the whole family is accommodated. And thus the homestead of a respectable farmer often resembles a little village. The dexterity of the backwoodsman and the use of the axe is also remarkable. Yet it ceases to be so regarded, when we reflect on the variety of uses to which this implement is applied, and that, in fact, it enters into almost all the occupations of the pioneer, in clearing land, building houses, making fences, providing fuel. The axe is used in tilling his fields. The farmer is continually obliged to cut away the trees that have fallen in his enclosure, and the roots that impede his plough. The path of the surveyor is cleared by the axe, and his lines and corners marked by this instrument. Roads are opened and bridges made by the axe. The first courthouses and jails are fashioned of logs with the same tool. In labor or hunting, in traveling by land or water, the axe is ever the companion of the backwoodsman. Most of these cabins were fortresses in themselves, and were capable of being defended by a family for several days. The thickness of the walls and numerous loopholes were sometimes supplemented by a clay covering upon the roof, so as to resist the fiery arrows of the savages. Sometimes places of concealment were provided for the women and children beneath the floor, with a closely fitting trap-door leading to it. Such a place of refuge was provided by Mrs. Graves, a widow who lost her husband in Braddock's retreat. In a large pit beneath the floor of the cabin every night, she laid her children to sleep upon a bed of straw, and there, replacing one of the floor-logs, she passed the weary hours in darkness, seated by the window which commanded a view of the clearing through which the Indians would have to approach. When her youngest child required nursing, she would lift the floor-log and sit on the edge of the opening until it was lulled to sleep, 
and then deposit the nursling once more in its secret bed. Once, while sitting without a light, knitting, before the window, she saw three Indians approaching stealthily. Retreating to the hiding-place beneath the floor, she heard them enter the cabin, and having struck a light, proceed to help themselves to such eatables as they found in the pantry. After remaining for an hour in the house, and appropriating such articles as Indians most value, viz., knives, axes, etc., they took their departure. More elaborate fortresses were often necessary, and for purposes of mutual defense in a country which swarmed with Indians, the settlers banded together and erected stations, forts, and blockhouses. A station may be described as a series of cabins built on the sides of a parallelogram and united with palisades, so as to present on the outside a continuous wall with only one or two doors, the cabin doors opening on the inside into a common square. A fort was a stockade enclosure embracing cabins, etc., for the accommodation of several families. One side was formed by a range of cabins separated by divisions, or partitions of logs. The walls on the outside were ten or twelve feet high, with roofs sloping inward. Some of these cabins were provided with puncheon floors, that is, floors made of logs split in half and smoothed, but most of the floors were earthen. At the angles of these forts were built the blockhouses, which projected about two feet beyond the outer walls of the cabins and stockade. These upper stories were about eighteen feet, or two inches every way larger than the under one, leaving an opening at the commencement of the second story, to prevent the enemy from making a lodgment under the walls. These blockhouses were devised in the early days of the first settlements made in our country, and furnished rallying points for the settlers when attacked by the Indians. On the western frontier they were enlarged and improved, to meet the military exigencies arising in a country which swarmed with savages. In some forts, instead of blockhouses, the angles were furnished with bastions. A large folding-gate, made of thick slabs nearest the spring, closed the forts. The stockade, bastion, cabin, and blockhouse walls were furnished with portholes at proper heights and distances. The whole of the outside was made completely bulletproof. The families belonging to these forts were so attached to their own cabins on their farms that they seldom moved into the forts in the spring until compelled by some alarm, that is, when it was announced by some murder that Indians were in the settlement. We have described thus in detail the fortified posts established along the frontier for the purpose of showing that the life of the pioneer woman, from the earliest times, was, and now is, to a large extent, a military one. She was forced to learn a soldier's habits and a soldier's virtues. Eternal vigilance was the price of safety, and during the absence of the male members of the household, which were frequent and sometimes protracted, the women were on guard duty, and acted as the sentinels of their home fortresses. Watchful against stratagem as against violent attack, they passed many a night all alone in their isolated cabins, averting danger with all a woman's fertility of resource, and meeting it with all the courage of a man. On one occasion a party of Indians approached a solitary log-house, with the intention of murdering the inmates. With their usual caution, one of their number was sent forward to reconnoitre, who, discovering the only persons within to be a woman, two or three children, and a negro man, rushed in by himself and seized the negro. 
The woman caught up the axe, and with a single blow laid the savage warrior dead at her feet, while the children closed the door, and with ready sagacity employed themselves fastening it. The rest of the Indians came up and attempted to force an entrance, but the negro and the children kept the door closed, and the intrepid mother, having no effective weapon, picked up a gun-barrel, which had neither stock nor lock, and pointed it at the savages through the apertures between the logs. The Indians, deceived by the appearance of a gun, and daunted by the death of their companion, retired. The station, the fort, and the blockhouse were the only refuge of the isolated settlers when the Indians became bolder in their attacks. When the report of the four-pounder, or the ringing of the fort-bell, or a volley of musketry sounded the alarm, the women and children hurried to the fortification. Sometimes, while threading the mazes of the forest, the hapless mother and her children would fall into an ambush. Springing from their cover, the prowling savages would ply their tomahawks and scalping-knives amid the shrieks of their helpless victims, or bear them away into a captivity more cruel than death. One summer's afternoon, while Mrs. Folsom, with her babe in her arms, was hastening to Fort Stanwig in the Black River country, New York, after hearing the alarm, she caught sight of a huge Indian lying behind a log, with his rifle leveled apparently directly at her. She quickly sprang to one side, and ran through the woods in a course at right angles with the point of danger, expecting every moment to be pierced with a rifle-ball. Casting a horror-stricken glance over her shoulder as she ran, she saw her husband hastening on after her, but directly under the Indian's rifle. Shrieking loudly, she pointed to the savage just in time to warn her husband, who stepped behind a tree as the report of the rifle rang through the forest. In an instant he drew a bead upon the lurking foe, who fell with a bullet through his brain. Before the family could reach the fort, a legion of savages, roused by the report of the rifles, were on their trail. The mother and child fled swiftly towards their place of refuge, which they succeeded in reaching without harm. But the brave father, while trying to keep the savages at bay, was shot and scalped almost under the walls of the fort. Anne Bush, another of these border heroines, was still more unfortunate than Mrs. Folsom. While she and her husband were fleeing for safety to one of the stations on the Virginia borders, they were overtaken and captured by the Indians, who shot and scalped her husband. And although she soon escaped from captivity, yet in less than twelve months after, while again attempting to find refuge in the same station, she was captured a second time, with an infant in her arms. After traveling a few hours, the savages bent down a young hickory, sharpened it, seized the child, scalped it, and spitted it upon the tree. They then scalped and tomahawked the mother, and left her for dead. She lay insensible for many hours, but it was the will of Providence that she should survive the shock. When she recovered her senses, she bandaged her head with her apron, and, wonderful to tell, in two days staggered back to the settlement with the dead body of her infant. The transitions of frontier life were often startling and sad. From a wedding to a funeral, from a merry-making to a massacre, were frequent vicissitudes. One of these shiftings of the scene is described by an actor and eyewitness as follows. Father had gone away the day before, and mother and the children were alone. About nine o'clock at night we saw two Indians approaching. Mother immediately threw a bucket of water on the fire to prevent them from seeing us, 
made us lie on the floor, bolted and barred the door, and posted herself there with an axe and rifle. We never knew why they desisted from an attack, or how father escaped. In two or three days all of us set out for Clinch Mountain, to the wedding of Happy Kincaid, a clever young fellow from Holston, and Sally McClure, a fine girl of seventeen, modest and pretty, yet fearless. We knew the Shawnees were about, that our fort and household effects must be left unguarded, and might be destroyed, that we incurred the risk of a fight or an ambuscade, a capture and even death on the route. But in those days, and in that wild country, folks did not calculate consequences closely, and the temptation to a frolic, a wedding, a feast, and a dance till daylight, and often for several days together, was not to be resisted. Off we went. Instead of the bridal party, the well-spread table, the ringing laughter, and the sounding feet of buxom dancers, we found a pile of ashes, and six or seven ghastly corpses tomahawked and scalped. Mrs. McClure, her infant, and three other children, including Sally, the intended bride, had been carried off by the savages. They soon tore the poor infant from the mother's arms, and killed and scalped it, that she might travel faster. While they were scalping this child, Peggy McClure, a girl twelve years old, perceived a sinkhole immediately at her feet, and dropped silently into it. It communicated with a ravine, down which she ran, and brought the news to the settlement. The same night Sally, who had been tied and forced to lie down between two warriors, contrived to loosen her thongs and make her escape. She struck for the canebrake, then for the river, and to conceal her trail resolved to descend it. It was deep wading, and the current was so rapid she had to fill her petticoat with gravel to steady herself. She soon, however, recovered confidence, returned to shore, and finally reached the still-smoking homestead about dark next evening. A few neighbors, well armed, had just buried the dead. The last prayer had been said, when the orphan girl stood before them. Yielding to the entreaties of her lover, who was present, and to the advice and persuasion of her friends, the weeping girl gave her consent to an immediate marriage, and beside the grave of the household, and near the ruins of the cabin, they were accordingly made one. These perilous adventures were episodes, we should remember, in a life of extraordinary labor and hardship. The luxuries and comforts of older communities were unknown to the settlers on the border-line, either in New England two centuries ago, or in the West within the present generation. Plain in every way was the life of the borderer, plain in dress, in manners, in equipage, in houses. The cabins were furnished in the most primitive style. Blocks or stumps of trees served for chairs and tables. Bedsteads were made by laying rows of saplings across two logs, forming a spring bed for the women and children, while the men lay on the floor with their feet to the fire and a log under their heads for a pillow. The furniture of the cabin in the West, for several years after the settlement of the country, consisted of a few pewter dishes, plates and spoons, but mostly of wooden bowls, trenchers and noggins, if these last were scarce, gourds and hard-shell squashes made up the deficiency. The iron pots, knives, and forks were brought from the east, with the salt and iron on pack-horses. The articles of furniture corresponded very well with the articles of diet. Hog and hominy was a dish of proverbial celebrity. Johnny cake or pone was at the outset of the settlement the only form of bread in use for breakfast or dinner. 
At supper, milk and mush was a standard dish. When milk was scarce, the hominy supplied its place, and mush was frequently eaten with sweetened water, molasses, bear's oil, or the gravy of fried meat. In the display of furniture, Delft, China, or silver were unknown. The introduction of Delftware was considered by many of the backwoods people as a wasteful innovation. It was too easily broken, and the plates dulled their scalping and clasp-knives. The costume of the women of the frontier was suited to the plainness of the habitations where they lived, and the furniture they used. Homespun, linsey woolsey and buckskin were the primitive materials out of which their everyday dresses were made, and only on occasions of social festivity were they seen in braver robes. Rings, brooches, buckles, and ruffles were heirlooms from parents or grandparents. But this plainness of living and attire was a preparation for, and almost necessary antecedent, of hardihood, endurance, courage, patience, qualities which made themselves manifest in the heroic acting of these women of the border. With such a state of society we can readily associate assiduous labor, a battling with danger in its myriad shapes, a subjugation of the hostile forces of nature, and a developing of a strange and peculiar civilization. Here we see woman in her true glory, not a doll to carry silks and jewels, not a puppet to be dandled by fops, an idol of profane adoration reverenced to-day, discarded to-morrow, admired but not respected, desired but not esteemed, ruling by passion, not affection, imparting her weakness, not her constancy, to the sex she should exalt, the source and marrow of vanity. We see her as a wife partaking of the cares and guiding the labors of her husband, and by domestic diligence spreading cheerfulness all around for his sake, sharing the decent refinements of civilization without being injured by them, placing all her joy, all her happiness, in the merited approbation of the man she loves. As a mother, we find her affectionate, the ardent instructress of the children she has reared from infancy, and trained up to thought and to the practice of virtue, to meditation and benevolence, and to become strong and useful men and women. Could there be happiness or comfort in such dwellings and such a state of society? To those who are accustomed to modern refinement, the truth appears like fable. The lowly occupants of log cabins were often among the most happy of mankind. Exercise and excitement gave them health. They were practically equal. Common danger made them mutually dependent. Brilliant hopes of future wealth and distinction led them on. And as there was ample room for all, and as each newcomer increased individual and general security, there was little room for that envy, jealousy, and hatred which constitutes a large portion of human misery in older societies. Never were the story, the joke, the song, and the laugh better enjoyed than upon the hewed blocks or puncheon stools around the roaring log-fire of the early western settler. The lyre of Apollo was not hailed with more delight in primitive Greece than the advent of the first fiddler among the dwellers of the wilderness, and the polished daughters of the East never enjoyed themselves half so well, moving to the music of a full band upon the elastic floor of their ornamented ballroom, as did the daughters of the western emigrants, keeping time to the self-taught fiddler on the bare earth or puncheon floor of the primitive log-cabin. The smile of the polished beauty is the wave of the lake where the breeze plays gently over it, and her movement the gentle stream which drains it, 
but the laugh of the log cabin is the gush of nature's fountain, and its movement the leaping water. Amid the multifarious toils of pioneer life, woman has often proved that she is the last to forget the stranger that is within the gates. She welcomes the coming, as she speeds the parting guest. Let us suppose travelers caught in a rainstorm, who reach at last one of these western homes. There is a roof, a stick chimney, drenched cattle crowding in beneath a strawy barrack, and some forlorn fowls huddling under a cart. The log house is a small one, though its neat corn-crib and chicken-coop of slender poles bespeaks a careful farmer. No gate is seen, but great bars which are let down or climbed over, and the cabin has only a back door. Within, everything ministers to the useful, nothing to the beautiful. Flitches of bacon, dried beef, and ham depend from the ceiling. Pots and kettles are ranged in a row in the recess on one side of the fireplace, and above these necessary utensils are plates and heavy earthen nappies. The axe and gun stand together in one corner. The good woman of the house is thin as a shadow, and pinched and wrinkled with hard labor. Little boys and girls are playing on the floor like kittens. A free and hospitable welcome is given to the travelers. Their wet garments are ranged for drying on those slender poles usually seen above the ample fireplace of a log cabin in the west, placed there for the purpose of drying sometimes the week's wash when the weather is rainy, sometimes whole rows of slender circlets of pumpkins for next spring's pies, or festoons of sliced apples. The good woman, after busying herself in those little offices which evince a desire to make guests welcome, puts an old cloak on her head, and flies out to place tubs, pails, pans, and jars under the pouring eaves, intimating that as soap was scarce, she must try and catch rainwater anyhow. The old man has the shakes, so the woman has all to do, throws more wood on the fire, and fans it with her apron, cuts rashers of bacon, runs out to the hen-coop, and brings in new-laid eggs, mixes a johnny-cake, and sets it in a pan upon the embers. While the supper is cooking, the rain subsides to a sprinkle, and the travelers look at the surroundings of this pioneer household. The cabin stands in a prairie, skirted by a forest. A stream gurgles by. The prairie is broken with patches of corn and potatoes, which are just emerging from the rich black mold. Pig-pens, a barn, and corn-houses. A half-dozen sheep in an enclosure. Cows and calves and oxen in a barnyard a garden-patch, and hen-coops, and stumps of what were once mighty trees, tell the story of the farmer's labors, and the cabin, with all its appurtenances and surroundings, show how much the good woman has contributed to make it the abode of rustic plenty, all provided by the unaided toil of this pioneer couple. They had come from the east ten years before, and their cabin was the initial point from which grew up a numerous settlement. Other cabins sent up their smoke in the prairie around them, a schoolhouse and church had been built, and a sawmill was at work on the stream nearby, and surveyors for a railroad had just laid out a route for the iron horse. Two little boys come in now, skipping from school, and at the same time the good woman, who is all patience and civility, announces supper. Sage tea, johnny cake, fried eggs, and bacon, seasoned with sundry invitations of the hostess to partake freely, and then the travelers are in a mood for rest. The sleeping arrangements are of a somewhat perplexing character. These are one large bed and a trundle bed. 
The former is given up to the travellers. The trundle bed suffices for the little ones. The hostess prepares a cotton sheet partition for the benefit of those who choose to undress, and then begins to prepare herself for the rest which she stands sorely in need of. She and her good man repose upon the floor, with buffalo robes for pillows, and with their feet to the fire. The hospitality of the frontier women is bounded only by their means of affording it. Come when you may, they welcome you, give you of their best while you remain, and regret your departure with simple and unfeigned sincerity. If you are sick, all that sympathy and care can devise is done for you, and all this is from the heart. Homestead life, and woman's influence therein, is modified to some extent by the different races that contributed their quotas to the pioneer army. The early French settlements in our western states furnish a picture somewhat different from those of the emigrants of English blood. A patriarchal state of society, self-satisfied and kindly, with bright superficial features, but lacking the earnest purpose and restless aggressive energy of the Anglo-American whose very amusements and festivals partook of a useful character. Those French pioneer women made thrifty and industrious housewives, and entered, with all the gaiety and enthusiasm of their race, into all the merry-makings and social enjoyments peculiar to those neighborhoods. On festive occasions, the blooming damsels wound round their foreheads fancy-colored handkerchiefs, streaming with gay ribbons, or plumed with flowers. The matrons wore the short jacket or petticoat, the foot was left uncovered and free, but on holidays it was adorned with the light moccasin, brilliant with porcupine quills, shells, beads, and lace. A faithful picture of life in these French settlements possesses an indescribable charm, such as that conveyed by the perusal of Longfellow's Acadian romance of Evangeline, when we see in a border settlement the French maiden, wife, and widow. Different types, too, of homestead life are of course to be looked for in different sections. On the ocean's beach, on the shores of the inland seas, on the banks of great rivers, in the heart of the forest, on the rugged hills of New England, on southern savannas, on western prairies, or among the mountains beyond, the region, the scenery, the climate, the social laws may be diverse, yet homestead life on the frontier, widely varying as it does in its form and outward surroundings is in its spirit everywhere essentially the same. The sky that bends over all, and the sun that sheds its light for all, are symbols of the oneness of the animating principle in the home where woman is the bright and potent genius. We have spoken of the western form of homestead life, because the frontier line of today lies in the Occident. But in each stage of the movement that carried our people onward in their destined course from ocean to ocean, the wife and the mother were centers from which emanated a force to impel forward, and to fix firmly in the chosen abode those organisms of society which forms the molecular atoms out of which, by the laws of our being, is built the compact structure of civilization. In approximating toward some estimate of woman's peculiar influence in those lonely and far-off western homes, we must not fail to take into account the humanizing and refining power which she exerts to soften the rugged features of frontier life. Different classes of women all worked in their way towards this end. The young married people, who form a considerable part of the pioneer element in our country, are simple in their habits, moderate in their aspirations, and hoard a little old-fashioned romance, unconsciously enough, in the secret nooks of their rustic hearts. 
They find no fault with their bare loggeries. With a shelter and a handful of furniture, they have enough. If there is the wherewithal to spread a warm supper for the old man when he comes in from work, the young wife forgets the long, solitary, wordless day, and asks no greater happiness than preparing it by the help of such materials and utensils as would be looked at with utter contempt in the comfortable kitchens of the East. They have youth, hope, health, occupation, and amusement, and when you have added meat, clothes, and fire, what more has England's queen? We should, however, remember that there is another large class of women, who, for various reasons, have left comfortable homes in older communities, and risked their happiness and all that they have in enterprises of pioneer life in the far west. What wonder that they should sadly miss the thousand old familiar means and appliances! Some utensil or implement necessary to their husbandry is wanting or has been lost or broken, and cannot be replaced. Some comfort or luxury to which she has been used from childhood is lacking, and cannot be furnished. The multifarious materials upon which household art can employ itself are reduced to the few absolute essentials. These difficulties are felt more by the woman than the man. To quote the words of a writer who was herself a pioneer housewife in the West, the husband goes to his work with the same axe or hoe which fitted his hand in his old woods and fields. He tills the same soil, or perhaps a far richer and more hopeful one. He gazes on the same book of nature which he has read from his infancy, and sees only a fresher and more glowing page. And he returns home with the sun, strong in heart and full of self-congratulation on the favorable change in his lot. Perhaps he finds the home bird drooping and disconsolate. She has found a thousand difficulties which her rougher mate can scarcely be taught to feel as evils. She has been looking in vain for any of the cherished features of her old fireside. What cares he if the time-honored cupboard is meagerly represented by a few oak boards lying on pegs called shelves? His tea equipage shines as it was wont. The biscuits can hardly stay on the brightly glistening plates. His bread never was better baked. What does he want with the great old-fashioned rocking chair? When he is tired, he goes to bed, for he is never tired till bedtime. The sacrifices in moving west have been made most largely by women. It is this very dearth of so many things that once made her life easy and comfortable, which throws her back upon her own resources. Here again is woman's strength, fertile in expedients, apt in device, an artesian to construct, and an artist to embellish. She proceeds to supply what is lacking in her new home. She has a miraculous faculty for creating much out of little. And for transforming the coarse into the beautiful, barrels are converted into easy chairs and washstands. Spring beds are manufactured with rows of slender, elastic saplings. A box covered with muslin stuffed with hay serves for a lounge. By the aid of considerable personal exertion, while she adds to the list of useful and necessary articles, she also enlarges the circle of luxuries. An hour or two of extra work now and then enables her to hoard enough to buy a new looking glass, and to make from time to time small additions to the showy part of the household. After she has transformed the rude cabin into a cozy habitation, she turns her attention to the outside surroundings. Woodbine and wild cucumber are trailed over the doors and windows. Little beds of sweet william and marigolds line the path to the clearing's edge, or across the prairie sward to the well. 
and an apple or pear tree is put in here and there. In all these works, either of use or embellishment, if not done by her own hand, she is at least the moving spirit. Thus over the rugged and homely features of her lot she throws something of the magic of that ideal of which the poet sings. Nymph of our soul and brightener of our being, she makes the common waters musical, binds the rude night winds in a silver thrall, bids Hybla's time and tempts violets dwell round the green marge of her moon-haunted cell. It is the thousand nameless household offices performed by women that makes the home. It is the home which molds the character of the children and makes the husband what he is. Who can deny the vast debt of gratitude due from the present generation of Americans to these offices of women in refining and ameliorating the rude tone of frontier life? It may well be said that the pioneer women of America have made the wilderness bud and blossom like the rose. Under their hands even nature itself, no longer a wild, wayward mother, turns a more benign face upon her children. A land bright with flowers and bursting with fruitage testifies to the labors and influence of those who embellish the homestead and make it attractive to their husbands and children. A traveler on the vast prairies of Kansas and Nebraska will often see cabins remote from the great thoroughfares, embowered in vines and shrubbery, and bright with beds of flowers. Entering, he will discern the rugged features of frontier life, softened in a hundred ways by the hand of woman. The steel is just as hard and more serviceable after it is polished, and the oak wood as strong and durable when it is trimmed and smoothed. The children of the frontier are as hardy and as manly, though the gentle voice of woman schools their rugged ways, and her kind hand leads them through the paths of refinement and molds them in the school of humanity. End of chapter 8